tuned to the conversation here on HPR One, Hawaii Talks. I'm Catherine Cruz. You know, we've been hearing a lot about the installation of red light safety cameras at intersections where motorists running red lights have been a chronic problem. Today we get the latest from Ed Sniffen, Department of Transportation Highways Administrator. Good morning, Ed. Good morning. How are you doing? I'm doing really well on this Aloha Friday. I hope you are, too. <laughs> I am. Thank you. <laughs> well, so I guess we should remind our listeners. So this project uh, that you've uh, uh, started here on uh, the 1st of October, right? You've, uh, you've launched it. It's here just on Oahu. It's a pilot project. Absolutely. Uh, we, we finally got the authority from the legislature two years ago uh, to start this pilot project to signalize 10 intersections uh, in the Honolulu District uh, Court area to put in red lights, uh, red light cameras to enforce that um, that, that dangerous, <laughs> dangerous kind of action. And so you uh, uh, turned on the first one, <laughs> right, over yeah. there at uh, uh, Palama and yep. Vineyard. Limits and Palama. And so tell us. So you know, do you have any numbers back? How's how did it go this first week? Yeah. So you know, prior to putting that, um, that signal in place and, and starting it to run in operation, we had to do an engineering study. During that study period that just ran a couple of days, um, there were an average of 10 people or 10 drivers running red lights in that intersection per day. Um, after we installed it on the first of this month uh, and ran it for, for several days now, uh, we have an average of about 18 um, red light runners in that area. Um, the, the difficult thing is um, seeing these red light running um, it, you know, it, it shows the, 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 the types of dangers there are at these different intersections. And this is just one on a walk on one of the islands that we have. Um, what's, more, what's more difficult to see is the egregious nature of some, some of these red light runnings. I mean, there's, there's people who are running it with several seconds of red before they run the intersection. One of them that we caught on, on camera resulted in a crash of a left-turning vehicle getting hit by somebody trying to get straight through after the red light's been red for several seconds, it's, it's just horrific to see. Oh, my gosh. I hope they were okay. You know, um, you know ha- happily, there were no fatalities that occurred um, from that crash. But still, scary. It just kind of highlights the problem. You know, this we just turned the cameras on, and guess what? Kaboom. Exactly. That, that's the difficulty. I mean, these are just the ones we're catching at one intersection. Um, after we turn the 10 on, I'm sure we'll capture a whole bunch more. And, and I'm hoping that we never do, right? Um, the whole intent of this is to make sure that everybody understands that we're enforcing these areas 24-7. And the hope is that, and, and we're, we're not hiding this from anybody. We're sending out as much information as possible to the public to tell everybody the intersection that we're, we're enforcing, to, to let everybody know that we're going to be doing it 24-7. And we have signs that lead up to the intersection to say that this is a full enforced intersection. The hope is to make sure that we change that driving culture out there of running red light. Um, overall, um, studies show nationally that um, a quarter of the, the fatalities that occur at intersections are all because of people running red light. So we change that one behavior, we cut our fatalities tremendously. And we're not just talking collisions with other cars. We're talking with cyclists and pedestrians. Absolutely. We're trying to protect every user on the road. Uh, with this technology and I mean I wish that we never had to do it I wish that uh, we would all just take that into consideration when we're getting to a signal and stopping to make sure that we we keep everybody safe there um, fact is it's not happening so we, we got to take some some measures to ensure that we remind everybody uh, what we're trying to get done I was going back and looking at stories of the the red red light or the the, the van cams and that was 20 years ago that uh, you know we tried it and that ended uh, but it's just amazing that so much time has passed. I totally agree. And, and I get it. You know, uh, when the van cams came out, uh, we did a couple of mistakes in the DOT. Uh, when we put them out there, it was kind of a gotcha kind of thing, right? We could move the van cams around. Um, uh, the vendor itself was getting paid for the number of citations they, um, they issued. And, um, and in general, they were issuing citations for, for any, anybody going one mile per hour over the speed limit. And of course, it, it's caused tremendous backlash in the community that resulted in that legislation being pulled back. We took a lot of um, notes from that, that previous failed attempt and made sure that we are corrected it um, with these red light uh, cameras. We're making sure that this is not a gotcha thing. You know exactly where we're going to be all the time. Um, you know that we're going to be really uh, cautious about issuing the tickets. So we want to make sure that, that we're fair about it. Um, and the, the vendor gets no profit 
from any citations issue. Okay, so we've got more of a methodical rollout, uh, you know, and, and, you know, I was, you know, going back when, as I was reading those articles, you know, it talked about how, you know, those van cams were going to be moved around to the neighbor island. So, you know, well, it's a pilot here for now, but are there plans to take it to the neighbor islands? Absolutely. You know, the, the first thing that we wanted to do is make sure we proofed out the, the technology. And the legislature was strong uh, partners in doing this. They made sure that we ran a pilot in the Honolulu district, or court district, first to see, prove out all the, the technology itself, get the bugs out of the system, and not just the, the system of operating on the highway, but through the courts as well, uh, with our police, with our prosecutors, and, and trying real cases. Once we get that two-year cycle done, uh, we'll get we'll back to the legislature with a recommendation on where we would expand this program to. And definitely, uh, you, you can see there's a whole bunch of sites just on Oahu that we'd need to consider. Um, on Vineyard Boulevard, um, at Liha is one of the big ones. You look at um, Kahikibi Highway at Haiku, another really big one where you see a lot of high-speed um, people running the red. But you look at the, the neighbor islands, Honopilani Highway, um, there's a bunch of intersections in those areas where there's high-speed runners uh, through the intersections. Punene Ave is another area that we see. Um, the good thing is, it's not just our data that's identifying these potential locations that we'd expand into. It's the public now calling us. After they've seen the articles and they've seen the improvements they're trying to make um, in, for safety in the different areas, they're calling in and giving us recommendations on, on areas they see that are really dangerous. So it's, it's exciting. Well, uh, gosh, so the this first week now, you've had the cameras on, uh, you know, you've identified vehicles. <laughs> How soon will those drivers, uh, you know, get notices that uh, they had their picture taken? <laughs> well, sending them out, we want to try and send them out as fast as possible, but the process is to make sure that our vendor reviews the photos to make sure it's clear. Um, the police take a look at it next to ensure that there's a clear citation or there's a clear violation that occurred. And then we send out those warnings to to the public. So it took us until this until today to make sure we can we cleared that process. Those warnings are going out today in the mail. Um, so those that that ran the red during this past week will receive their warning next week. And I'm hopeful that um, these warnings issued will ensure that we don't have to issue any citations when we actually start running uh, the, the red light um, operation. Okay, and then when the site, when will let's say the citations go out? When will that start? That next phase? Yeah. So the, the HRS requires, and, and when we worked with the legislators, we wanted to make sure this was as fair as possible. The HRS requires that we have a 60-day education period for any of the phases that we we push out. Um, our first notice on this went out in um, November. I'm sorry, September. So end of September it went out. Uh, we get, we have a 60-day educational period uh, that we would run uh, before we start operating or sending out a real citation. Um, so not, an announcement went out on September 20th. The earliest we can send out citations is October 20th, if, if there are still red light runners then. Okay, October 20th. <laughs> our, <laughs> our motorists need to uh, to, to heed that uh, and, and modify their behavior. I guess that's what we want. We want folks to be a little more cautious and, uh, and uh, safety-wise. Absolutely. That's the whole intent. I, I'm hopeful that we don't have to issue any citations during this period because people know we're operating. Just assume there's a police officer sitting at that intersection. You see the blue light there. You know what kind of behavior you have when that blue light's up um, up in that intersection. Operate that way. Okay. And then what are the fines again? So um, the HRS allows fines up to $200. But typically, that first violation is $97. The court set that the violation amount. The great thing is, you know, again, I'm hopeful that none of this, uh, nobody gets cited for this because everybody follows the law. But if you do get cited and you do pay your fine, that fine goes directly into this red light running program to fund the program itself. We're not taking any of the money to do anything else. We're going to do it specifically for this. Okay. Well, you figure $200, that, you know, uh, that's a lot of gas you can buy. So you'd rather use it for that than uh, uh, paying the court. <laughs> but, but thank you so exactly. much, Ed. Are we really well, thank you so much, Catherine. Take care. All right. Appreciate your time. Bye-bye. That was Department of Transportation Highways Administrator Ed Sniffen talking to us about the installation of red light safety cameras to address some of our problematic intersections that endanger our motorists, cyclists, and pedestrians.
Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Matson, committed to strengthening island communities by assisting local food bank networks on Oahu and the neighbor islands. Matson.com. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hi, I'm David Gibson, author of The Complete Guide to Sound Healing. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about how sound affects us physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. Beginning Sunday morning at 11. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the new Hawaii Island Community Health Center, promoting lifelong health and wellness through health care, open to all. Learn more at hicommunityhealthcenter.org. reality check. Honolulu Civil Beat has a follow-up frog story, not the amphibious kind, but the one that points to uh, concerns about a potential problem with the track, with our rail system. Reporter Marcel Henri joins us. Good morning. Hey, Catherine. Happy Aloha Friday. Yes. And so you were covering the uh, uh, heart meeting yesterday where this came up. It was on the agenda. What did they, what did they decide? That's right. So uh, Frog's up again at the heart meeting, and um, heart executive director Lori Kahikina made her thoughts abundantly clear on the issue yesterday. She said that this is an old issue, that heart has already fixed the issues with its flange-bearing frogs, and that the agency's moved on. And she really just expressed a lot of frustration, frankly, that we are all still talking about these flange-bearing frogs. But really the primary reason that it came up this week is that Hart posted this very interesting eyebrow-raising memo from the Department of Transportation Services, or at least an employee of that uh, division. Uh, They posted it to its website ahead of the meeting and agendized it for discussion. Uh, So the Hart board uh, really took up the matter. And so this was what then for transparency's sake that there were still maybe some concerns about whether we were really done with frogs and, and the, the problem was fixed? That's right. What we learned yesterday at the meeting was that it was in fact DTS director Roger Morton himself who asked that this memo uh, from an employee who still hasn't been identified, uh, Morton declined to identify it, but that he is the one who asked that this be posted to the meeting agenda. And he did so in part because he said that this memo from somebody inside his division has been circulating among uh, project officials who are working on it. And so he wanted to set the record straight that the memo does not reflect departmental policy. Okay, so there's kind of a whisper campaign that internally, uh, and they just want to be real clear that we think we've resolved this. Right. And not only Roger Morton, but he had one of his deputies, the Rapid Transit director, Patrick Prusser, address the board and say that he's all systems go on using these flange bearing frogs. Both of them did acknowledge that there's been some robust discussion among some of the tracks, track experts within DTS and that there are continued concerns. And the board seemed mostly amenable to what was being said. They did have some questions about whether uh, some costs could come back on the city should there be problems with this, uh, whether or not Hitachi could file a claim uh, to its existing fixed contract. And it it eventually came out that, yes, Hitachi could, but there's no indication, according to Prusser, that that's going to happen at this point. And so these frogs then are, are a piece of equipment on the tracks right where they cross over and and there was initially some concern about the about how tight those were and how they fit with the wheels on the train and then they ended up changing the wheels right the wheels weren't fitting properly with these distinct crossing points where the the tracks cross each other and what's come out in the reporting is that Hart and the city back in the day uh, I, I want to say circa 2012 or so, uh, decided to use this 
particular kind of frog that you typically see on freight uh, freight lines, right on the on the on the on the mainland, uh, that we're using it abundantly for our transit system. And so Hart, like I said at the beginning, you know they they address this because things weren't fitting correctly, they weren't aligning properly the the interface between all of these components. And they've said, look, we are going to do special welding. We are going to completely retrofit the wheels with with custom fitting wheels. Uh, We have consulted with a third party consultant that's considered the gold standard in the industry and all of that. But there are are still what's being what's coming out is that there are still people within this project that have questions about this and wonder why we didn't just replace these frogs uh, to begin with. That that would have made a lot more sense, certainly from a maintenance perspective going forward, that it's just going to be a nightmare. And that is what Hart is pushing back against and what, frankly, Kahikina is, is growing frustrated about, saying that we've fixed this. Let's move on. Well, we hope she's right, <laughs> right? As taxpayers, we want to believe that um, that this isn't going to be a problem going forward because uh, the the costs are already you know runaway to begin with. So you know, and I know she's been trying to to uh, pull back and and keep a you know close eye on those costs. But um, yeah, we we hope she's right, and we don't have to you know this won't come back and bite us later on. It will remain to be seen. Okay. All right. Well, thanks so much, Marcel. Thanks so much, Catherine. All righty. That was reporter Marcel Henri with today's Reality Check. You can read the full story at civilbeat.org. Many Native Hawaiian organizations have helped to restore, preserve, and care for our special places, but some of them need help to build capacity and expand their reach. That's what a new program hopes to do. HPR's Jane Omai joins us with more. Good morning. Good morning. Hi, Catherine. Thanks for having me. So as you mentioned, there's a new program, and it was recently launched by the Historic Hawaii Foundation. And essentially, they just want to boost the work that these Native Hawaiian organizations do within their communities. So, um, you know, these groups are experts in the culture and the history of these sites. But as Kirsten Faulkner points out, she's the foundation's executive director. Sometimes they just need help with everything else. And so that includes things like how do we grow our and expand our programs while embracing our traditions from our kupuna to kind of understanding the government regulations associated with caring for these historic sites. And so as part of this free program, they'll have training that will tackle things like contracts, compliance, procurement. Um, It would also include hands-on sessions where actually the foundation staff can learn from these cultural practitioners. And so um, Faulkner, when I talked to her, says it's, it's really meaningful for the foundation to continue to do this work and kind of share their expertise with these groups because, you know, what they do is what these groups do can be life changing for many communities. Being together as a community, working and providing service to a place is powerful. It sets an expectation of what does it mean to be part of a community that cares for its cultural sites and its places. So when we're looking at generational change, those are the things that will matter as people care for and really become connected to a place. So this is kind of a like a stewardship 2.0, kind of elevates these groups in our community. Kind of, yeah. So they officially launched the program last year. And so they've been working from then to really a few months ago to um, choose three groups out of more than 50 people who actually express interest in the program. Um, so they notified the three groups in July. And so um, it's interesting because the program is actually funded by two grants. Um, so about $75,000 from the Hawaii Tourism Authority and about $450,000 from the Native Act. And the Native Act is basically a federal program um, that was first started as a bill co-introduced by Senator Brian Schatz. And it essentially tries to help Native American and Native Native Hawaiian communities 
um, kind of create and expand these cultural tourism opportunities. So um, one of the, the participating programs that was chosen, or the participating groups, is the Pacific American Foundation. And I spoke to its uh, president and CEO, Herb Lee Jr. And so they have worked with thousands of kids to take care of the Waikalua local fish pond in Kaneohe. When I saw the faces of those kids for the very first time learn in the context of the fish pond, you know, math, science, social study, language arts, whatever it was, and see that face of wonderment, I was hooked from that point on. And I continue to see that look of wonderment in the kids as we uh, continue to pass through time. You can hear the passion in his voice. Of course. And he's super passionate about what he does. And it's for him, you know, they've really built a community around the fish pond and really engaged students and kids from the area. But now what they really want to learn from the program is how do we kind of bring toward uh, visitors into the mix? And so they want to kind of create that same sense of kuleana to a place with the visitors that they kind of see in the kids and the, the people who kind of pass through the fish pond. And so he was inspired to kind of apply for this historic Hawaii program um, through the idea of this regenerative tourism. And we hear that phrase a lot. Yes, the new right? buzzword. <laughs> yeah, of course. And it essentially means to kind of give back to a place that you visit. And so they are one group. Um, joining them is the nonprofit Ka'ulu Akalana. And so they take care of the Ulupo, Heiau, and Kauainui fish pond in Kailua. And so the group's executive director is Kalea Wong. And he, it's really, it's really interesting because he kind of describes that same wonderment and the face of joy um, in the kids that he works with in their lo'i as uh, Lee Jr. also described. They take their first step into the lo'i and into the mud. It's just like pure joy. They can't believe what they're doing. You know, they're told as, as I was as a kid, like, you know, that's dirty, like, or don't touch that, or, you know, wear your shoes. And we're specifically telling them, you got to take off your shoes and, you know, connect to this place. <laughs> Sounds like fun. <laughs> it does. So uh, moving forward, uh, Wong and Lee Jr. and one of their group will begin the program. Uh, they plan to do it this month, and it'll span for about 18 months. And then after that, Historic Hawaii actually plans to train additional groups because the program is funded through 2026. And so their hope is to really kind of create a framework for how these stewardship proga- programs can work across the board. So it's really strengthening a lot of these uh maybe some of them fledging groups, you know, in the community already. And it's across the state, right? Yeah, it is. And it's kind of like twofold. So it helps kind of communities build on what they learn, build on what they do already, and also helps them to kind of um, maybe work on some things that, you know, is not very familiar with them, like government regulations, protocols, just things like that. So it's kind of all-encompassing. Helping them along. All right. But thank you so much, Jaina. Thank you, Catherine. We have been talking to H. Paris, Jaina Omae. Check out her stories on hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for HPR comes from Magnolia Boutique and Gallery in Kahala Mall, open daily, offering original art and gifts by Hawaii artists, including paintings, jewelry, clothing, and more. Also online at magnolia-hawaii.com. Hey, hey, I'm Brittany Luce, the new host of NPR's It's Been a Minute. For my debut episode, Stacey Abrams told me she's done with labels. I've always chafed at the Black Girl Magic narrative. Hmm. It imbues me with an almost messianic responsibility that I didn't ask for, don't accept, and will not do. Abrams on her new bid for governor and making history for Black women next time on It's Been a Minute from NPR. Beginning Saturday at noon following Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributor Hastings and Pleadwell, a communication company.
This is the last weekend of training for a young women's crew team that Hawaii is sending to the East Coast to compete against rowers from across the country. It has been 50 years since we have set a team from the islands to the prestigious head of Charles Regatta in Boston. We got out for an early morning session on the water on the Alawai Canal to see uh, two men in four-man shells. Students from Hawaii's private and public charter schools are taking out are taking part. The glassy waters of the canal are really the only protected spot to train. The hypnotic sounds of, on the gunnel helps to focus the team to get into the rhythm. Coach Riley Hager comes around to give the rowers a critique. So when you lock it in at the catch, I think just take a little bit more time with the stroke, right? A, a stroke that goes fast through the water isn't necessarily the strongest stroke, right? So give the stroke a little bit of time to unfold, get that full pocket of water. Sophia, your strokes, your stroke above the, the gunnel looks a lot longer than what your blade is doing, right? So when you lock it in, I want you to try to keep that blade in the water, locked and loaded, as much water as you can move as possible every stroke, really bury it in until the finish, right? Because you're popping out just a little bit early and letting go of that lock on the water. And then for Jenna, um, it looks a lot better, but sitting up tall and making sure you're engaging the core so you get that full leg drive and the body isn't being pulled. Make sense? All right, cool. Spin, how many was that, two? Three. Great, awesome. And it's only 6.12. Got that, 6.12 in the morning, and the team has been out here since 5 a.m. For the last 10 years, Ikaika Hawaii has sent more than 40 student-athletes uh, to college on rowing and kayaking scholarships. Shelly Oates-Wilding is a two-time Olympic participant, and she's the force behind Ikaika Hawaii. Coach Shelly also happens to head the U.S. National Sprint Canoe and Kayak Team. We first caught up with her last month at a row-a-thon that the club put on to increase the visibility of the team and their goals of competing on the East Coast. We are, what, six hours into this rowathon, and uh, the, the young ladies uh, are still going at it. They certainly are. It's definitely a long day for them. They started at 6 a.m. this morning, and they're going to go right through to 6 p.m. The whole goal is for them to really get a chance to share the word about rowing in Hawaii. We've obviously had a rich history of Hawaii without of rowing without even realizing that, you know, Iolani was the first team to ever go from Hawaii and go to the Olympic trials and made the final. And that was 50 years ago. And there hasn't really been any rowing in Hawaii since that. Ikaika Hawaii has the only sweep oar boat on the islands and we have a coxed four which is what people do at uh, university and our goal is to provide a positive pathway for the keiki of hawaii to get to college to row and hopefully open up doors for them in terms of not just college but also if they wanted to take it all the way to going to the olympic games I discovered rowing mm -hmm. in college. We, I was part of a first women's crew team at Santa Clara. And, you know, this year we're marking Title IX. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, just going back and reflecting on, wow, we were that first team. And, and then to think now that these kids can get scholarships yeah. to attend college because of this sport. It really is a great uh, pathway opener, and especially from Hawaii, because we have the paddling, yet that doesn't unfortunately offer any college openings. And same with kayaking. So kayaking, my job now as the head coach of canoe and kayak for the USA, uh, my job is to try and get kids all the way to the Olympic Games. And I see so many amazing watermen here in Hawaii, yet the only chance at the moment of getting them to college is through the rowing. So we're really hoping to expand this program to give more and more kids that chance to go to college, to also get scholarships through Title IX, and really to understand what it's like to perpetuate the Hawaiian waterman's culture on the mainland, you know, and give them that pathway. You know, so many people turn out for paddling. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, we're just wrapping up the long distance competitions yeah. now, you know, and yet when you talk about 
a crew team, people are like, oh, what's that, exactly. you know? <laughs> and that's part of this whole awareness right now, that we really want kids to know that all those skills they're learning, all those life lessons they're learning from being a great team member in a paddling team. Uh, I was lucky enough to do Molokai over 20 times, and I know that all those skills that they're learning in their paddling can transfer into being a great crew member and it can really open some doors for them. There is amazing opportunities for them to be part of a new family as soon as they go to college and I know a lot of kids balk at going to the mainland and I would really um, urge them to look at this possibility and not just for the tall athletic rowers. We have fabulous um, uh, leaders here in Hawaii and we have a great Cox program where you know you need to be like the steerer of the boat you need to be the motivator you need to be the glue that creates an amazing positive attitude in teams and a lot of our kids here really fit that bill beautifully and we really would love them to have that opportunity to row at college. Yeah. Kaika encompasses all the schools, it encompasses all the clubs and we want to help them have this family that provides other opportunities individually and as a team that then they can take back to their paddling teams, they can take back to their school kayaking or their school um, anything from water polo through to swimming and so our goal is to get kids off island to get kids to represent Hawaii at the national championships which we have every year and we took 35 kids this year and that's in the, the kayaking but we also have the national rowing that we take kids to and then we want to get kids like we just had last week we had eight kids go to the world championships for canoe and kayak and that was in Hungary and then we had uh, five kids who went to the Olympic Hopes Regatta which is canoe and kayak for 15 16 and 17 year olds so there are these opportunities out there. Uh, we also have eight kids from Hawaii who are in the national senior team and they're obviously trying to get to the Olympic Games but my goal is to see what we can do in terms of represent, getting representation from our island to the Olympic Games to inspire others to realize that you can be a great scholar, you can be a great waterman and you can be a fabulous person all in one if you want to um, demonstrate what it takes to be a champion person first and then be a great athlete. You know from experience because you're an Olympic athlete and, and you know when the kids here think what mm. you know a crew team you don't really see a lot of hype around that at no. all you know no you you definitely don't and hopefully we're changing that a little bit the issues we've had is space because the Alawai is really the only place in all of Hawaii where you could do crew so we're trying to still work with the DLNR to get a space to put the big long rowing boats onto the water safely for these kids so that is one of the great things we're looking for someone to help champion that and we're hoping that the public will help support that. We've actually done a few drives where we, we do have the support. It's just a matter of going through what it takes to really get awareness to get these kids on the water. So hopefully there will be more hype with rowing in the future and not just the rowing, the pathway all the way to international competition because you know a lot of our kids are very talented and they have the dedication it's just that they didn't know about uh, the possibility to go to Europe and uh, it's amazing once they do get to Europe they learn so much about how to be a great citizen of the world you know and have friends all around the world. <laughs> I guess when I think of you know what King Kalakaua did yes. right to encourage that kind of global view and, and the Duke. Yes. <laughs> See seriously I think of the Duke at his time and what he did and traveled and you know a lot of the times I think you don't know the full story that it would have been hard for him and when he went to Australia and you know he was seen as with the racism of what he was and things like that and hopefully sport is a way to bridge all those um, gaps or those issues and these kids when they get to compete like last week they were competing with kids from all over Europe unfortunately Russia wasn't there but the Ukraine was there and of course all of Asia were there China were there everybody was there and these kids get to form relationships with the next generation and hopefully that can be on a huge scale a really positive thing for humanity as well as the society of Hawaii which is very welcoming and um, hopefully continue 
continues to be like a family of the world, you know? <laughs> well, I just think of access, though. If, if your team and your kids need access on the water, yes. you know, with what Kalakaua did, encouraging, you know, those rowers to come to Hawaii from yes. all those Ivy League schools, that, why is it so hard in this day and age? Yes, that's really interesting you should say that because I know he set up a whole series of races where he had everyone from Harvard, Yale, um, Berkeley, all over, and he even had teams from Australia and Japan and everybody coming here. Uh, and there was a real league going on in the Alawai, and I would love to see if we can do that again. We did have the Olympic team come here before Tokyo, and we did have the DLNR and the city and county helping to allow that to happen. We really do need support from the powers that be to be able to utilize the Alawai for that purpose. So the, the, the limiting factors are usually bureaucracy, to be honest, and I really hope that by getting the awareness out that these kids are really great people. And the reason why they are is because they're extremely dedicated. If we can keep supporting our kids being their best, uh, then we inspire others to do the same. If we can really look at all these kids and give them the opportunities to go to that next level and, as you say, with access to the water, we have the perfect place, we have the perfect weather, we have everything we need if we can utilise it together, you know. So we're at the moment at the Hawaii Yacht Club. We have uh, three programs at the Hawaii Yacht Club and unfortunately we don't have enough space. So at the Hawaii Yacht Club, the program that we really love to be our grounding is our waterman safety skills and stewardship program and so that's from kids from six years old and we want to teach them everything about how to be a, a good um, ocean steward how to have skills for safety so they become water aware they they become understanding of the waterman's acronym which goes through watch where the warm-up which goes through everything from looking after your equipment knowing your limits all that type of thing and that's a week-long program uh, we would love to start rolling that out to all the schools so that really is in a perfect place there at the Hawaii Yacht Club the program that we've got here which is the kids all year round and they're training morning and night for the kayaking and the canoeing and then also for the rowing is squashed in there too. <laughs> um, unfortunately the problem is trying to get on the water so if we have them all at the same time in the afternoons you're trying to get a hundred kids on the water and you can't do that. So we're hoping to find another place in the harbour to at least have the rowing and the elite kayaking group. They're the kids that are currently going to represent, one at the head of the Charles and two for the kids who are going to represent the country in the kayaking and we're hoping to find another place the big vision is to have a waterman centre right at the end of the Alawai and that would have all three programs. It would have the uh, Centre of Excellence, it would have a History and Cultural Centre and then it would have the, the Waterman Safety Skills and Stewardship. That was Shelley Oates-Wilding, two-time Olympian and head of the USA Sprint Kayak Team for the American Canoe Association. She was talking about Ikaika Hawaii and uh, some young paddlers who will be competing in the uh, or I should say rowers who will be competing in the head of the Charles Regatta in Boston next weekend. Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributors, Bavarian Motor Experts, and Chaminade University. What makes something essential? Essential is what connects us to the world or escape to another. Essential is what gets you through your day. Essential is what you can't go without. You've told us that HPR is your essential listening, and we can't bring this vital statewide service without your financial support. $10 a month from listeners like you makes a difference. Donate today at hawaiipublicradio.org. This week on This American Life. Steve says it every day, but this is the key. You can't just come out here and fly your flags. You got to go home and get involved. You got to get in the fight. There's this whole movement to fill the lower ranks of the Republican Party, the precinct committee jobs, with people who think the last election was stolen. Take over the Republican Party. We have to MAGA the Republican Party. What that's going to do to this fall's elections and the ones after it this week. This American Life beginning Saturday afternoon at 1. 
Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art. The immersive exhibition, Rebecca Louise Law, Awakening, uses plant and botanical materials to explore the human connection to the natural world. Now on view, honolulumuseum.org. Music artist Starla Marie just released a bold and energetic video for her new single, Prime. Marie is a Kauai native. She grew up in Wailua in a Puerto Rican family and graduated from Kapa'a High School. Music runs in her blood. Both her parents were in a family band, and her cousin is a former pop star turned educator, Glenn Medeiros. Marie's music making journey started at a young age and early in her professional career. A few of her songs were licensed for video games. Dance Dance Revolution, and Tetris. But in the early 2010s, she took a long break from music to follow other paths and dreams. And now she's back. She's got a new album of songs she hopes will inspire the world. The Conversations Russell Subiano got the chance to connect with Starla Marie at a recording studio in L.A. to learn more about her return and her new album. Did your parents bring you into the band or did they bring you up on stage when you were young? And is, is that kind of yes. how you guys started? I was a bit too young, but that. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, actually, I think for my family, the transition was to like my mom, she decided to be my manager. And even though like I had like a lot of musicians around me, like we tried to solely focus instead of just being for their band, they tried to focus on, on me being you know, more of like the performer and which is what I'm really grateful for is that they had me doing a lot of charities, you know, the MDA, St. Jude's, like a lot of different things that for me, it meant a lot to me. And that's something that, you know, it still means a lot to me. And hopefully, you know, one day I'll have a foundation, you know, to give back because like I think it's really important. Music's always just been my passion and it's fortunate enough to have, you know, opportunities to work, work with several different people. My cousin Glenn actually I was fortunate enough to to be featured in his band mm-hmm. at several gigs, you know, around Oahu and was able to just collaborate with different people and just really fortunate to just pursue music from the young age. So, And as you grew into an adult and you started to find your own style of music and, and your own sound, what was your early sound like? Well, I think my influences was definitely my cousin Glenn when I was younger. Yeah, Michael Jackson, Whitney Houston. So like, I think style kind of was leading more towards a pop R&B style and a little bit of Latin infused in it too as well. Because yeah, that's also a part of my culture too, what I'm mixed with. Yeah, And I think when we bring our cultures and our experiences and our background into our art, I think that's a lot of what makes us really unique. When you were growing up, did you feel like you had to go to the continent to be able to pursue your dreams? I think it just, it, it happened organically. Like my, my love for music has fortunately led me to these opportunities. My mission is to make a difference with my voice and my songwriting. And, you know, even if there's one person that I can touch and, and make them smile or make a difference, that's what is, you know, really important to me. And luckily <laughs> I've been, you know, given opportunities to, to do what I love. I know at least one of your songs that you recorded in, I think around the early 2000s, was licensed by a video game manufacturer. How did they find your music? It's a fortunate thing that actually happened because I think I was consistently out there and people would, would see me and I was performing regularly like five to six nights a week. And uh, it's just by them seeing me and them hearing me and being happy with, with what we created. So that was just by by luck, I guess you could say. <laughs> yeah, sometimes life just bounces in a lucky way like that. I was very, very happy with that. Oh, yeah, cool. I love that. That Science Revolution, Tetris, yeah. you know. <laughs> Thank y'all for, ha- for featuring the music. You know, hopefully they'll like some of the new stuff, too. <laughs> yeah. 
I had heard that you had a very successful career, a career that was emerging, I think in the early 2000s. And then I've been told that you took some time off from music. And I'm just interested to know what led you to step away from the stage? I think because like I started so young and I was consistently working, which I was very blessed with everything that was happening. And the honest truth is, when I, I came to a certain point in my career and my mom managed me for a majority of my career, there was a, a time when she retired as my manager and I had to face a lot of different obstacles in the industry. There's a lot that I don't really want to, you know, I want to keep it a positive interview because yeah. like, you know, like stolen equipment, gigs and money and a lot of different things, you know, and I think that's what a lot of people don't understand is that, you know, the, the music part, you know, the art is beautiful, but the business can be very challenging and, and hard, you know, and cutthroat. And it wasn't, I wanted to take a break and I actually transitioned into acting and which is when I actually, I'm so grateful for for that time that I, I was still writing. I never stopped writing music, but I transitioned into acting and I have some of the best friends that I hold dear to my heart because of those acting classes. And it actually made me a better songwriter and a performer because I took those classes. And it wasn't until, you know, as things developed years on, you know, I was blessed to work on different projects, you know, for film and stuff. And I had different opportunities to work with. It wasn't until I met Automatic and Ebony that I wanted to get back into the studio and I wanted to get back into creating and being a full artist again. So thank you all so much from the bottom of my heart for that. My cousin told me when I was growing up to you, like, it's very important to have great people in your corner that have your best interests. It was a life learning lesson. You know, when you don't have like a manager, you need, you probably need a, a bigger team to help you in certain areas. So like for me, everything happens for a reason. It was a very good learning experience. And I'm just blessed because I have the amazing people in my corner now. And it's really important to underscore that you never gave up, right? That you had some less than ideal experiences and you found another way to create art, but you never gave up on music and you came back to music. When I've listened to your EP Prime, I think that's definitely a theme that I hear in your title track, Prime. Can you talk about writing that song and the kind of messages that you wanted to get across? You know, Prime is, is a feeling that you're you're on the top of your game and at your best. And, you know, I, I want to motivate people to never give up on their dreams and their goals. You know, it's, you know, life is challenging and we have obstacles, but we need to overcome that. And everything at the end will be worth it at the end, at the right time. And that's what Prime represents. In the right time, it'll be your time to shine. And, you know, there's a lot of people that's contributed to this music video. So shout out to all my amazing fam and friends and everybody out there. And I was just very blessed to to come back home to to shoot the video. It's very important to me. And you really showcase a lot of what is beautiful about Hawaii and Hawaii's culture. What do you love so much about your home state? This kind of actually goes into the song Aloha. Mountains filled with mana waterfalls, the tropical essence when you're here, you have it all. But the true beauty of this place is unseen. It's the heart of loyalty and generosity. Because, you know, born and raised in Hawaii, it's not just beautiful, but it's the people and the culture and just the energy and spirit, you know, everything combined and everyone is is just, it's so unique. And for me, it's like, I've been blessed and, you know, we're very diverse in culture. And I think the, the people and, you know, the land that like we live in harmony with grace and kindness. And it's something that's very special to me as home, you know, so I love Hawaii. And speaking of culture and ethnicities, you show another side of yourself on the EP with the song Go With The Flow, which features lyrics in Spanish. I know there's a big Puerto Rican presence in our islands and on Kauai. Why was it important for you to include this side of you? 
this side of me because actually my my dad plays a Spanish guitar sample. I think it's called Cuatro. So he's playing that style. Break it down, Daddy. And it was very important to me to because my dad growing up like was like one of the best like mentors telling me, you know, stay positive and all of this. So this song, you know, go with the flow. It's like I want to keep it really positive, regardless of like what happens, you know, to stay positive, you know, go with the flow, let go of the things that are out of your control. And I think, you know, having that flavor of it, because majority of my family played that style. Like it was like they had R&B, but they had that kind of like Puerto Rican Portuguese style. I love that you brought his music into your music. One theme that I tend to hear in many albums by female singers and female musicians is this idea that they want to be seen. Is that something that you feel is important for women, especially young women coming up in the industry? I think it depends on the motivation of being seen. Like, I think your intention of, of what you are in the industry is really important. To be seen, to be heard, like everything is very important, but your message behind everything is also very important. What you're doing to motivate people, to inspire people, and how you're inspiring people and what you're doing to make an impact is very important. Thank you so much for sharing your story with me, Starla. Thank, Thank you. you. Take care. That was local music artist Starla Marie talking with HBR's Russell Subiono. Marie says she's working with her managers on future projects to continue to promote her new album, Prime, including a possible tour. Her album and video for the single Prime are available to stream online now. That is it for this Aloha Friday. Coming up next week, we, we plan to talk about paddling, our history and our future. Call or talk back line. Leave us your comments. 808-792-8217. Facebook us at The Conversation HPR or write to us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. You can listen to our past shows on the Conversation page of the HPR website. Our program is produced by Savannah Harriman-Pote, Russell Subiano, Lillian Song, and Stephanie Hahn. Backyard quiz theme written for us by John DeMello. Theme music courtesy of Gypsy 808. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us Monday. Pick up the conversation.